This on 90.3 WCPN Idea Stream. It's November 12th here with a virtual City Club Forum. For more than nine years in a row now, Cuyahoga County's travel and tourism industry has logged record-setting growth rates in visitation, buoyed by new hotels, restaurants, the unveiling of the redesigned public square, and the securing of major events such as the Republican National Convention, the Major League Baseball All-Star Game, and the upcoming NFL Draft, the region's visitation increased at a faster pace in 2019 than did the rest of the nation. And then the coronavirus pandemic brought the world pretty much to a standstill. As cities locked down to stop the spread of the disease, travel evaporated. Here we are nearly nine months later, the travel and tourism industry is one of, if not the hardest hit industry, with a whopping 36% of the country's travel losses. How can the travel and tourism industry survive until the pandemic subsides? What's that mean on a national, a regional, and a local scale? We have assembled today a group of local and national experts to answer these questions and many more. So I'm joined today by Nan Marchand Beauvoir, the Senior Vice President of Membership and Industry Relations for the U.S. Travel Association, by David Gilbert, the President and CEO of Destination Cleveland, and by Adam Sachs, the President of Tourism Economics. As in every single City Club Forum, you can participate with your questions as well. Please text them. The number is 330-541-5794. It's on your screen, 330-541-5794. You can also tweet the messages to at the City Club, all one word, and we will certainly work those in. And with that, let us begin. Welcome to all the guests. Adam, you're my data guy. I'm going to start with you. What's the state of the industry around the U.S.? We think that we're hurting here in Cleveland, Northeast Ohio, but are we average? Are we better than some? What's the complete story? Well, the, the, the story is that the, the industry has staged a modest recovery. I and mean, you go back to where we were in the spring, travel spending around the country was down over 80%. Uh, we never experienced anything like it. And then as we went through the summer, we began to see people travel again regionally, most people driving, not flying, um, but we saw some recovery. Um, where we are now is travel spending is still down about 45% relative to where it was last year. So by no means healed, about 50% of people are saying they don't feel comfortable traveling outside of their community right now. And, and Cleveland has performed really right in line with that. Um, so very consistent with those national averages. And, and, and we expect when all is said and done, travel spending in Cleveland uh, will have declined in the range of 50% for the year 2020. That is a stunning number. David, 20 million people was our goal for 2020. Were we on target for that? Are we on target for that? Not anymore, but long-term prior to COVID? Yeah, Rick, we, we were. We, um, in fact, just a few weeks ago, we announced um, all of our, our metrics that we track year over year for 2019, and we were doing incredibly well. We had a ninth straight year where growth in the number of visits from a percentage basis was up over the national average, um, eight out of nine years up over the state average. Um, uh, travel and tourism continued to be uh, a, a growth industry for our region. Um, and for every every increase in people visiting, it increases the number of jobs, the, no, the amount of spending, uh, the amount of taxes generated, and so many other great things that come with it. So we, we certainly were on track about five years ago. We set a number of 20 million visits by 2020. 
um, and uh, and we had gone from 14 million uh, to um, to over 19 and a half million. So we were very much on track to hit that hit that target. We talk about in the industry things like branding, giving Cleveland a reputation beyond just the convention planners, but with tourists as well. Nan, how important is it when outsiders think Cleveland that there's something for them to attach to that word? It's critically important because there's every other city in the United States and also globally is trying to vie for that visitor's attention. And I think um, Cleveland brilliantly back in 2014, when you launched your new brand, you were you truly set the stage for being authentic to what your destination has to offer. Um, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I think that real that authenticity is something that we know that travelers value. So that messaging, which is on brand, is really critical to a part of your success, I feel. David, is there anybody we emulate? She gave us great props there for being one of the leaders. Is there someone we emulate somewhere we look to say, that's a great idea, we could do that, it works for Northeast Ohio? Well, one, Nan, thank you. I appreciate the, the you, you saying that. We really are proud of feeling like we're right on target with that brand and, and it's it's definitely worked. I think, Rick, um, when we when we looked at at uh, developing the brand, we really didn't have a place in mind. What we tried very very hard to do, and it was through a year long process of enormous amounts of research into uh, locally, regionally, nationally, at, at capturing the essence of who Cleveland is. And as Nan said, that's that's the good, the bad, and the ugly. But it's who we are, uh, and and a brand is really about a feeling you elicit. And we know that the people who who that that can relate to who we are and want to be part of that, they're coming. I think that the other piece that was important is we have an aspiration of, of wanting to be sort of an it city, if you will. Um, you know, we look a lot in many ways at our, our regional competitors, uh, Columbus and Indianapolis, uh, uh, Pittsburgh and so on in, in so many ways. But we also need to look at aspirationally when we say an it city, it's, it's it's one of those that when, when when you say the name of a city and wh whatever it stands for, you get a, you really get a positive impression. I think, you know, Seattle's hit that and Portland's hit that. And, and over, over the years, I think now Austin and Nashville are probably the top two in the country from my perspective. And 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 I think part of it for us is we, we, we would like to get ourselves to be that it city of the Midwest from a perception standpoint, that when you think of Cleveland, it really conjures up a... Uh, uh, an image that you're positive about. Kind of interesting. When you started that sentence, the first two towns that came into my head were Seattle and Austin, and those are the ones you named. So clearly that means that they're doing something right. Nan, is that something that could work for every city? We can't all be it city. You can't all be it's, but you can definitely be authentic and really focus on what is different and what might resonate to visitors. Um, the only other thing I would mention about, about being authentic is there is a state that has followed in, in your footprint, Prince David, and that's Nebraska. They came out with a campaign about 18 months ago that's won them national acclaim, and it really followed in the footsteps of what you've done. Or you have a country like Bermuda, who kind of tongue-in-cheek um, uses the triangle in, within its branding and its marketing. So you just have to kind of find that niche or that that thing that'll resonate. And to David's point, it's not it's it's a very long and arduous process. 
Um, it does take time. And, uh, but when you land on it, you will reap the benefits of that. Rick, I'd, I'd just like to add one other thing, because I think to Nan's point, it's right with Nebraska. It's also being proud of who you are and exactly. genuinely, genuinely projecting that. Embrace and not it. Trying to be something you're not. Exactly. Embrace it. That's very important. That is important. Okay, embrace it unapologetically. Adam, I know you focus on the intersection of the economy and the travel sector. Boil down for the layperson, what does that mean? Well, I mean, there are a number of things that I could say about that. I, I think one of the one of the pieces of information that's so important to understand is that the success of the Cleveland economy over the last decade has largely been tied to the success of the visitor economy. Um, employment within visitor-related industries in Cleveland over the last 10 years through 2019 grew at more than twice the rate of other industries in the Cleveland economy. And, and so now you're in a situation where one in three of all the job losses in Cleveland are related to the travel industry. So you put those two perspectives together and you get this very clear conclusion that the only way that the Cleveland economy becomes whole again and gets back to its prior peaks is through restoring the travel industry. Um, there's no other way that the Cleveland economy gets back to where it was without the travel industry becoming fully restored. It, it's simply just been too important a factor in the success of Cleveland for Cleveland to regain its its prior levels of economic activity without a restoration of the travel industry. Before I ask David specifically, Adam, around the country, do people have targets for when they think jobs can return to some level of normalcy? And that's if we get rid of this thing in six months. They do. Um, you know, we do a number of forecasting exercises for clients around the country. And the the general theme that comes out of as we do the modeling of, you know, what happens with the virus, what happens with the economy, and then with travel behavior as a function of those two things, we, we expect travel volumes in the U.S. to get pretty much back to where they were at by the end of 2023, right? So the end of 2023, you could expect to see people traveling to the same degree in the U.S., as they were before the crisis. Now, this, you know, keep in mind as far as the timeline of this is that, as you said, Rick, the, the next six months are gonna be almost entirely defined by the pandemic. And so it's not until we get containment that's gonna involve the rollout of the vaccine and mitigating efforts until we get people free to travel, right? And so we are, we're kind of circling on our calendars the second half of next year as being when we see pent-up demand emerge, where uh, where people are able to travel more freely, more confidently, um, at that point, then we're dealing with the residual effects of a recession that has indeed been quite severe. And so that that's why, even though we start to see people travel, uh, you know, in significant numbers, the end of the second half of next year, it'll then take another couple of years before we get back to prior peaks because. You still, we still have unemployment, about 10 million people unemployed in the U.S. And, uh, and absent additional fiscal stimulus, household income is going to start falling in the next couple of months. 
Um, so these are real headwinds that the industry is going to be facing for the next couple of years, uh, even as we emerge out of the, the crisis proper. David, you concur? Um, I do, and and you know we we certainly. Uh, follow the expertise of, of Adam and others around the country. Uh, you know, they are the they are the experts in this. I think our our goal is whatever whatever um, uh, uh, the experts are saying in terms of when this the, this industry nationally would be out of it. Our goal is to try to get there sooner. I mean, that's that that needs to be our goal. It's level setting across the country, and uh, um, and we we need to target our efforts so that when when we are out of it, we can accelerate as fast as we can. So, so we, you know, again, knowing especially how important it is to our region uh, that we get there, get get back as fast as we can. And yeah, I guess the only thing that I would, the only thing that I would add to that briefly is, given the size and the scope and the importance of our industry, how large, how many people are employed in our industry, getting our industry whole, getting us back up and running is a great way to help get the American economy back in, in shape. It's really, uh, really would be helpful if, and when we can travel, we can accelerate that, that'll help the economy overall nationally. Even in times like this, Nan, how critical is the advocacy work? I imagine there's no off season for trying to get people to realize that A, tourism as a whole helps the country and B, tourism to specific areas helps those areas. There's never an off season for advocating on behalf of the industry. And I think the one thing that COVID has shown us and also has shown our elected officials is the importance and the economic impact that we have for this country and, and globally anyway. So uh, no, it's a 24 uh, seven effort and um, we have an amazing government affairs and advocacy team and they are nonstop uh, working on behalf of this industry. So, uh, yeah, but the good news is that COVID has really, we had a seat at the table, but I think uh, given the economic impact that we're facing now as a country, they realize the importance of getting this economy, this tourism economy back as quickly as possible. Hey, David, Adam talked about the idea that there's this pent up demand out there. People want to know that where they're going is safe. How important is that going to be in the messaging that we send out to people that this is a safe place to be? Maybe you can't say you're safer than Columbus or safer than Austin, but we got to be safe to attract people. Yeah, it's critical. And, and interestingly, you know, if you go back pre-COVID, the, the, the thought of, of promoting yourselves as a safe destination, you know, really wasn't even on the radar. It wasn't, it wasn't really any significant part of people's uh, um, factors of where they chose to travel, where now it's number one. And, and you know, we, we started our Clean Committed program, uh, working with Cleveland Clinic, Metro Health, University Hospitals. We've uh, um, setting a, a set of standards. We have well over 700 businesses that have signed up, are promoting it online. So our locals and visitors have a place to go to look who has pledged to be uh, uh, um, clean committed. We've distributed along with the county together over 200,000 free safety kits through those businesses and other places and are gonna continue to do so. Um, so we've really tried to gear up to make sure that we could do everything in our power to project that this community is working together to help ensure the safety of visitors. And certainly you, you, we also have to acknowledge that it's a personal choice. 
We aren't trying to push people beyond their comfort zone, but recognizing that for people who are are open to being out in social situations, however they, in whatever way, we can promote the safest places for them to go. Uh, the one thing that I would add to that also is in the summer when we did see travel patterns, we noticed that people were traveling to areas that were deemed safe or perceived as being safe, like beach communities, had pretty decent summers, as well as the national parks, any type of outdoor activity. If a, if a consumer could travel to a, uh, to a place that was outdoors, we saw that those destinations, those cities that offered those type of activities uh, had stronger um, seasons than a, a city. But absolutely promoting safety and what you can do and what's open and, and how you need to engage within that community is definitely number one factor as people look to travel. So then does Destination Cleveland say, wait a minute, we've got a national park one county away. We've got this huge metro park system here. Do you start pushing that a little bit more than maybe you pushed it in the past? Yeah, we, we actually have done that. And, and our recent campaigns, which have been focused locally uh, as well as now starting a little bit regionally, have done exactly that, Rick. It's, uh, uh, we've started a number of passports um, and giving people checklists of places to go and things that that are perceived as safer um, and and um, outdoor activities and thankfully for, for a a metro area we're really uh, fortunate to have probably some of the the best infrastructure in the country one of the largest metro park systems largest and developed plus a national park really attached to uh, to our uh, um, attached to our city so uh, um, it has been helpful. Um, to to be able to promote a lot of that. And, and it is a plus for us, for sure. Adam, I see people doing things like going to a national park, but that's not going to churn the kind of money into our economy that some other things might have. Are there ways that we need to think about doing things differently that'll bring cash to Cleveland or to wherever? Yeah, a lot of that's going to come down to implementing safety protocol that allows people to engage in those more lucrative activities. So, you know, what, what can be done to ensure that restaurants can continue to stay open and at, at as much capacity as is safe. The same would be true of attractions. Um, so, you know, museums and, uh, and uh, you know, aquariums, zoos, these, these sorts of attractions, ensuring that they stay safe, theme parks, um, so, so these things matter. And then the other piece, of course, that, that matters a lot in terms of economic impact is the meetings and convention side. And it's the one area that has been the hardest hit of the entire travel economy in the U.S. Meetings and conventions have come to a virtual standstill. The, the meetings that have come back are relatively small in size. So uh, establishing guidelines within which meetings and conventions and trade shows can begin to take place again will be essential if we're going to get the revenue back to the industry. And uh, and that really matters for cities around the country, Cleveland included. Mm -hmm. Rick, I'd like to add something to that because I, I think it brings up such a good point that, that um, one of the things that hasn't stopped is business development. And particularly in that group side. Now, we were awarded a couple of weeks ago eight future NCAA championships. Um, we have, we have, we are still booking meetings and conventions. The pipeline has now started to open up, where um, uh, meeting convention centers, associations 
are now starting to to begin and look at 22, 23, 24 and beyond. And we're spending a lot of time trying to load that up so that when we're out of COVID, our, our pipe of future future groups um, is as strong as That was gonna be my um, very next one thing I would add to Oh, sorry, the last thing I would add to that about the meeting space is that U.S. Travel with the Meetings Needs Business Coalition understands the need to get the meetings and business events economy back up. And we are launching the Let's Meet There campaign sometime in Q1. I mean, the timing is a little flexible, but the whole purpose of launching that campaign is to focus on meeting safely. Um, we'll have websites, we'll have toolkits, we'll have messaging, and we actually will have a repository of meetings that have taken place where you can visually take a look at those meetings, find out some information, but it's all about meeting safely and making sure that people understand that even during COVID, you can meet safely as long as the protocols are followed. And that's the message you're gonna take nationwide. Correct. Mm -hmm. We're gonna be doing that, pushing that out nationwide. David, you just mentioned the NCAA. I was gonna say, we are fortunate to have so many things already on the books here, a lot of them courtesy of the NCAA, but it's not all about sports. How has the work of the past few years in attracting people to Northeast Ohio kind of helped to insulate Northeast Ohio from a bleaker future? Well, I think um, if if you look at this as sort of a level setting event, and as Adam mentioned, the, the, um, the difficulty and, and the drop off in travel is probably about right on par in Cleveland percentage-wise as it's been nationally. So then you get to what, what's the place from which you're starting? Where's our foundation? And we built a very strong foundation. And I, you know, when you when you in a, a matter of of um, seven years go from 14 million visits a year to 20, that's a, that's a significant increase. So if we're going to be off, we're starting from a better place. And we keep reminding ourselves that this is not a Cleveland problem. This is a national, a global issue, and and um, and we need to be ready when we're when we're on the other side of this to come out of the blocks as fast as we can. Um, and and um, thankfully, we're going to be starting from a much better place than we might have been six, seven, eight years ago. Adam, are there specific areas of opportunity the industry should be looking into that maybe we hadn't thought about pre-COVID? You mentioned safety. What else is out there that suddenly we're saying? This matters. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, you know where where our visitors come from is completely reshuffled right now, and and it's likely that we'll see that through the majority of 2021. So it has some pretty important implications for marketing strategy. Um, right right now, uh, you know, one in three respondents to a recent survey are saying they're switching from a fly trip to a drive trip. So it means that that vis visitors are now traveling and expect to be traveling in, into the near future regionally instead of cross country. So so that has a big implication on where we market, right? And so where Cleveland's visitors are going to come from in the near term, anyway, um, is going to be from a closer ring than than it was. Um, so that's one change. Uh, another change is that. Uh, there's virtually no international travel happening right now, either in or out. Um, but the fact is, if you look at 2019, there were 19 million more outbound trips by U.S. residents than there were inbound trips by international visitors. What that means is that if you are able to convert those would-be outbound international travelers of U.S. residents, um, 
you actually can more than compensate for those visitor losses in terms of inbound, at least on a volume of people basis. Right? They don't spend as much as international visitors. But that, that's another opportunity as far as focus and, and where we expect to see a silver lining. And that's going to continue through the majority of 2021. Um, you know, I think when we do see that rebound in the second half of the year, um, it's, it's going to be largely experienced in the domestic market. And, uh, and so that, that also becomes a major opportunity and where we're going to see the growth. You say people domestically don't spend as much. Is that because somebody coming here from Paris might spend seven or eight days? Somebody coming from Portland might spend four or what, what accounts for the difference? It's, it is that like the stay is a factor. Um, but, uh, but also, uh, the behavior while they're here. So international visitors shop a lot more than domestic travelers. Uh, they also tend to stay in nicer hotels and in paid accommodation as well. Um, and, uh, uh, and, you know, and then when an international travel comes from overseas, they often will stay, they, they will visit several states. So, um, so there's actually uh, not only that like the stay, but the transportation that it takes to get from one state to another. And, uh, yeah, and the spending just continues to, to ratchet up. And the average spending of an international overseas visitor in the U.S. is over $3,000. Nan, I was kind of wondering, had we ever prior to COVID, looked at what happens when the gravy train stops. I mean, there are a lot of places built their economies thinking, I've got tourism, that's coming, that's growing, that's booming. Had we ever looked at something like a sudden halt before? A day without tourism. Unfortunately, we have experienced it before. 9-11, we experienced it. Um, SARS, we experienced it. Um, but the one thing that we have learned is we know the importance of this economy, this tourism economy. and it's it's vital to our to the us and not only from an economic standpoint but when you do have people traveling and visiting there's greater understanding of culture even within the united states i mean being from southern california moving to the new northeast you could say it's a different culture so having that understanding having that exchange it's just critical and yes we have experienced crises before i mean you know Travel is very susceptible to these sorts of disasters, whether it be a hurricane regionally or um, social unrest in a city or a terrorist incident. But one thing has been remarkable is how resilient travel is. Um, with each of these crises that's faced the industry, it has always come back. Uh, there, has, there has been no incident that has been that has loomed so large that travel hasn't been fully restored and then grown additionally. So, so while these these crises do do present themselves over time, none of it changes kind of the you know the prevailing reality that travel does continue to grow over time and continues to over the last forty years grow faster than the rest of the economy, notwithstanding those crises. And I would add, and I would add you know, travel is about, it's about experiences and it's about interactions. Mm -hmm. And I think one thing COVID is showing us is that when we're as, as a people, when we're deprived of that, we crave it. And, uh, um, and, and that's why I, I'm very hopeful that when, when we are on the other side of this, people are going to, you know, potentially flock back to, to the, to the extent that they feel comfortable, but, but people are missing 
the, the, those interactions and those experiences that, that make their lives better. Yeah. So, yeah, definitely. It's interesting. No, I'm if, we're all, if we're all veterans of this industry to one degree or another, uh, and, uh, you know, over the last 25 years, I have seen and heard multiple times uh, industry pundits or would-be pundits, uh, you know, predict that the industry would never come back. Uh, and none of those predictions has aged well. Uh, it's always come back. And, and so, you know, as Mark Twain said, you know, the rumors of my death have been greatly exaggerated. Uh, the same is true right now of the travel industry. And uh, it, it, it is down, but certainly not out. Go ahead, Nan. No, and we know there's pent up demand. We launched a campaign called Let's Go There back in October. And the whole purpose of that campaign was to give people the permission to dream about traveling again when it was safer to do so, when there was more confidence to do so. And the results of that campaign has been phenomenal. And, uh, and when you look at the, the website, the traffic on the website and the social interaction that's been engaged around that, people definitely, that pent up demand is there. And when they can, they will be doing it. That's why this industry, this industry is so resilient because it's part of like your national right to travel. It's, it's such a big part of our lives. Um, I can't conceive of a life without travel. Personally. Let me tell the audience in a few moments, we're gonna be turning to your questions. If you have questions for our panelists, the number to text them is 330-541-5794. 330-541-5794. Also, you can tweet those questions to at the City Club, and we'll try and work all of your questions. And I do have some already, but please go ahead and send them. Um, David, you just used the word comfortable. I'm going to reveal that I left Cleveland, I think, twice now since this has all started. But on one of those trips, I went to New York City. We happened to be there the day the Metropolitan Museum of Art reopened. I was terrified. Even though the numbers of people were down, there were folks everywhere. And you could see that everyone was terrified to be that close to people again. How do we get around that? Not to throw shade on the Met, but how do you get around that? You know, I think um, time is is the answer. You know, when, when Adam mentioned that that you know there, there are factors. I mean, think about if the, the, the question was if if there is a a um, a medical a good medical response to COVID six months from now, it's still going to be three years until we see a recovery, and and that is is in part because of, of uh, um, unemployment and the recession that we were in. But the other part is that mentally, it still would take time. I think if you go back to 9-11, um, uh, it took, you know, the, tr the, the airline industry took a, a few years to get back to where they were in part because it, it took some people just some time mentally to feel comfortable getting back on a plane, e even, even if there was no evidence to show that that, that shouldn't have been the case. So I, I think it'll just be time that that um, uh, that a pre-COVID world will or post-COVID world rather will adjust to uh, uh, to people's feelings of safety uh, in being in traveling and being close to other people. Okay, adjust is a good word. Let's go ahead and start taking some questions now. Again, the number will be up on your screen. You can text them in. And David, we knew this first one was coming. I think we all could have guessed this. Will Cleveland be able to host the NFL draft in April, or will it be virtual? What kind of economic impact will that have on the city if we lose that show? Well, it's a great question. In fact, we had a great uh, um, long meeting this morning with the NFL and, and our team and all lots of partners around town um, uh, have been meeting with the NFL multiple times a week. 
Um, right now, the NFL draft is being planned as a very large, free, and in-person event um, down at our lakefront the last weekend in April. Um, and um, uh, right now, it is going to continue to be planned that way, but socially distanced, planned so in a socially distanced way um, until the COVID world tells us otherwise. Um, it's it will not be, if anyone remembers what was on TV in Nashville, the last live draft, yeah. it's become an incredible event. You know, 100,000 plus people every day in one place, in one time, uh, shoulder to shoulder. It will not be that. Um, that, you know, no, no matter what, it's it will be um, time ticketing. Uh, it will be a, a, a space that's enclosed so only so many people can be in at one, one time. But I will tell you what the NFL is planning in Cleveland is really incredible. And uh, I think all of us, you know, have the highest of hopes that it will take place uh, in person because it will make Cleveland shine, not just in front of tens of millions of people nationally and internationally on television, but for hopefully tens and tens of thousands of people on a, on a large footprint over the course of three days, uh, live and in person. At the same time, though, to get to the back half of that question, it's going to cost us some money because we can't be what Nashville was last time out, right? Well, I think it depends. I mean, in terms of uh, it's a it costs it costs money in terms of opportunity costs. I mean, it was Nashville when they, when they did their economic impact studies. Uh, the event had direct spending of well over a hundred million dollars, an incredible number. Um, and it won't be that in Cleveland. But depending on the size and scale, it could very well be some significant percentage of that, and that's still very much our hope. But what happens, you know, over the next five and a half to six months, which is the time frame we're looking at uh, in terms of, of our country's response to COVID and where we are right now is, is, uh, is anybody's guess. But certainly we're planning for something very large and exciting, and, uh, but also, also uh, keeping a, a, you know, a very close eye on a daily basis of, of what the COVID world tells us. Nan, should cities, specifically Cleveland, even be trying to attract events that are that large, a, a political convention, an NFL draft, or should we now start looking at different strategies, kind of assuming folks will be reticent to gather in large groups? Well, I think cities are, obviously, they have to be following their regional city and state guidelines for meetings, but I think you do have to continue to market um, and, you know, you're going to pivot to smaller events and meetings based on what the regulations are, but you the the time frame, the lead up time to larger events are, are multiple years out. So you still have to be in that game to market. And I think it's really important to, we spoke about this before, but even more so in the meetings and business events environment. I mean, a business event is, is a controlled environment. So you can guarantee that there are protocols in place that you can meet safely. And there are a lot of um, guidelines currently out there and certifications for safe gatherings that, that are in place. So short term, you might be looking at smaller business meetings, but long term, you have to be out there still pursuing those larger business events. Okay. I, I'd add, Rick, one thing that Nan had mentioned earlier. We're also talking, we have a customer advisory board and we're, we're getting a lot of input of, of what meeting planners um, are, are envisioning for the future. So we can position ourselves for what, if, if meetings are gonna look a little different in the future than they might 
pre-COVID. Um, what does that mean for us and how do we adjust with our physical spaces? How do we adjust our marketing? How do we adjust with our community's offerings to, to try to meet the demand of, of what the industry will be calling for in future years? Okay. I love it when the questioner prefaces it with not sure the panel can answer. But let's go ahead and try. And I'll go to Adam for this first part. I wanted to know if airlines are already starting to adjust their offerings because they know that people don't want to travel as much. Well, I mean, the airlines have made huge adjustments, uh, primarily by significantly reducing the number of flights and routes that they that they have in operation. So uh, the latest data shows that uh, air travel is operating at about a third of last year's levels. So only one in three passengers relative to, to last year. Um, you know, the offering itself the way that it's changed for those flights that are still operating is some really impressive safety protocol. Um, I, I have been, I have really been impressed with what the airlines have done. And the evidence is that air travel is, uh, is extremely safe uh, because of how uh, the air is recycled and filtered and the way that the planes are being cleaned and the protocol for touchless uh, access to the flights. Uh, so all of that, I think, bodes really well for how the airlines have uh, done an excellent job at um, trying to engender confidence in uh, in air travelers. And, uh, uh, you know, and and but the reality is, I don't think that we're going to see air travel uh, take off, if I can uh, use the pun there, uh, in the near term, just as cases continue to rise. People are going to be reluctant to travel. Um, but uh, but indeed, I, I think the airlines don't have done a really good. Well, let me put you on the spot. Have you flown and were you comfortable? Uh, I, I've flown multiple times and uh, and I have I've been very comfortable uh, and okay. I'm flying again on Monday. Uh, so for what that whatever that's worth. OK, good. Just want to make sure. Um, David, the second half of this question, I want to kind of throw at you because it's specific to Cleveland Hopkins. I wanted to know because we're not a hub for any airline, could we lose additional flights and carriers as people cease to fly as much as they did? Or are you concerned? Um, you know, I, I don't have every specific all the flights uh, um, that that have been scaled back at Hopkins, but but I think it's very much a national trend. I, I believe it really has nothing to do with the hub. And in fact, if you look, um, there were just over the last several months um, numerous flights added to Hopkins, um, particularly for uh, down to Florida um, as seasonality has started. Um, United added a number of flights back, uh, Frontier, Spirit, and others. Um, so I think what really matters most from, from the airline standpoint is can they fill planes at, from people going from point A to point B? And at the point that they determine they can and they're able in doing so, they, they will be adding those flights back um, around the country, including at Hopkins. 330-541-5794, the number to text your question. Nan, why don't you take this one? I wanted to know if you think we'll see a difference between local travel predicated on day or weekend or more local experiences, longer based plane vacations. Which one do you think people will return to first? I think people are going to travel locally first. They're going to start venturing out within their own communities and they're going to, the drive, the, the road trip is definitely back. In fact, Adam, you may have this particular statistic, but 
I think the average road trip was under 300 miles pre-COVID or maybe less, and now it's even longer. So people are willing to take longer trips in their cars so that they can go out and travel. So that's the first thing that's coming back, and we've seen that already. And this bodes well for Cleveland because our, our, you know, our bread and butter are, you know, we're a regional drive destination. Um, you know, we're not, we're not, um, you know, there, there aren't as many people from Salt Lake City thinking, should I fly to Cleveland for the weekend? But within a 500 mile radius, that's where we, we tend to really draw from. So as, as what Nan talked about and research is showing that that's what's going to come back first, we think we're actually well positioned for that. Yeah. We, we are not a hub for an airline, but we're kind of a hub for regional. We think Buffalo, Detroit, Indianapolis, Columbus, Pittsburgh, we are right there. Is that your target audience, David? It is. In fact, um, the first bit of, you know, for six months, we did no outbound marketing and advertising. Um, it, people weren't traveling. Our, certainly our budget has been far less. And we just recently started a little bit back and it's been um, in that, certainly in that, in that regional area, particularly from uh, uh, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Ohio. Okay. Adam, let me throw this one at you. It says Cleveland's convention business was growing pre-COVID. What does the panel think is the future of the convention industry now? Will they move to more virtual conventions rather than at large or in large uh, person gatherings? What's that mean for Cleveland as the back half of that? But for the industry, what's that mean? Well, the, the hybrid model of, of meetings is is likely going to be with us through a good part of 2021, because even as meetings start to take place, there are going to be some people that feel reluctant to participate in person. So that uh, that both in-person and virtual experience and integrating those uh, is, is something that uh, we expect to see throughout 2021. The longer the longer term view beyond that. Uh, uh, we expect that that hybrid model, you know, to continue to endure, but for a stronger recovery of in-person. The reality is that that the value of in-person meeting is is far greater than virtual meetings. Um, we have done significant research that's shown this. The U.S. Travel Association has done significant research that has shown this. Uh, the value of building partnerships, um, building knowledge bases, human capital, uh, sales, all of these things. Uh, there is there's no substitute for face to face. And so that value proposition of face to face is going to prevail in the longer term. And you see that. in you know, David, you were mentioning the sales pipeline for future events. Um, we're hearing that from clients all over the country that the meeting organizers, they are undeterred. Um, they see significant demand down the pike and they are they are booking future events for 2022, 2023, 24 and, and, and even beyond. Uh, the one thing that I would add to that, I was at the Meetings Professional International in Grapevine last last week. I actually went to that um, that annual conference, and there were 600 meeting attendees, primarily meeting planners, attended live, and over a thousand um, attended online. So the hybrid meeting is really strong, and it was really incredibly reassuring to see the protocols that were put in place to make sure that delegates were comfortable. And also the, the duty of care of the individual, the responsibility of the individual to make sure that they were following the protocols, that they took 
the daily COVID tests and got their temperatures checked. And, and there was a doctor's office on site at the convention that if you felt that you wanted to go in, you can get a rapid COVID test on site. So the media and business events industry, there is no question, as Adam said, it is a face-to-face -face business. That's when it's at its best. But the technology that has enabled hybrid meetings and everything else has really helped to, to let meetings continue during this difficult time. So mm -hmm. it's really critical and we'll be there. Okay. David, one of the things that we know about Cleveland is the growing foodie scene here. We've become one of the major cities for foods in the country, like in New Orleans or like in New York. A question came in, as many restaurants close and certainly the governor threatened that we could lose more next week, we may see more close. How does that affect our marketing as a foodie town? Can the restaurant industry, they ask, rebuild in Cleveland? Yeah, it's it's a it's a great question, uh, Rick, and and it's one that Cleveland and and quite frankly everywhere across the country are are facing. Um, you know the 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 fast fresh restaurant market, fast food doing great um, during COVID. In fact, are up during COVID. Um, but the full service restaurants, especially the smaller independent uh, um, restaurant tours, they're getting killed. Um, and, and COVID has affected them in a big way. I don't remember the statistics exactly, but the number of independent restaurants that have closed and are predicted to close across the country, including Cleveland, is, is, uh, um, is very disheartening. Um, I, think, I think there's a couple responses to it. For us, one of the things we're doing is really while we are, are keeping an eye on and planning uh, what we're going to do from a long term coming out of this from a marketing programmatic and standpoint, we're also doing the same really for the first time locally, particularly as it relates to restaurants and and hotels to some degree. Um, and and doing th we're going to be launching some things over the next couple of weeks specifically geared to trying to do everything we can to um, help boost business to restaurants during the winter months. I think surviving this next six months, four to six months during the winter in COVID is going to be key. So many restaurants were able to survive because of outdoor seating um, in particular, that, that is going to be really challenging for anyone in a, in a cold weather climate. Um, I think for long-term marketing, um, it, it's we're, we're a lot will still survive. And, and ultimately, I think it's a little bit like a, um, a forest fire or the pruning of a tree that when it does happen, as sad as it is, we are going to see new things grow. And, and uh, uh, we, we, you know, we, we've shown that we have a town and a, a thriving visitor economy that boosts those types of businesses. And I think we will see a lot of rebirth and regrowth and hopefully some great new products that will come out of the, the back end of COVID. And if folks aren't familiar with the term ghost restaurants, we're seeing more of that pop up in, in ways that will help. Um, Adam, nationally, is the scene the way he described it here? Are we seeing restaurants that know they're going to die, but know they can grow another way? Well, well yeah, yeah, the restaurant market is, I think, one of the, one of the key industries that highlights how much we need additional fiscal stimulus. Um, because fiscal stimulus is, is absolutely essential to keep restaurants in, in business, and so that that that, that, that you know flow both to households and unemployed households, but also to businesses. So it's, it's, it's another round of um, you know, you know, loans, forgive, forgive loans, 
or, or other, other support. support. Uh, you know, you know, the, the restaurant industry is primarily small enterprises. These small, small businesses don't have capital that they, they can you know, use to, to, get to get themselves through along down to they they they're to stretch the limit. Um, so so um, I, I agree with David, you know, you know, you know, you know, you know the outlaw of all of this disruptions, there's gonna be businesses. Um, but, I, but I think that it's paramount right now that policymakers take seriously um, what's what's at stake and how much fiscal stimulus is required for the restaurant industry for files and for attractions as well. Thanks. Apologize for a little bit of shaky sound there. We'll work on that. Um, had an interesting note come in here. It says, good day. We're a small business who's partnered with Lake Erie Shores and Islands for four years. They operate a tourism-reliant company. Uh, they were thanking all of you for supporting communities, but they wanted to know what can we do as a community in Sandusky. And for those of you who are local, Lake Resort Town, about 40 miles west of Cleveland, what can a place like that do to kind of follow Cleveland's lead and be supported by the folks who are here. David, any thoughts? Well, one, I'd say um, that that Lake Erie Shores and Islands actually has a has a terrific Convention and Visitors Bureau. Um, they, they do, a, they cross two counties. They do actually a tremendous job. We, we do a lot of partnering with them. Mm -hmm. um, it is a, it's certainly a part of our state that that is a tourism hotbed. Um, and, you know, I, I think one wonderful thing about, about so many of the attractions up there um, is, is that they are outdoor based, you know, whether you're Cedar Point, uh, uh, you know, all, all, all the attractions uh, in the islands, you know, and, and a lot of the, the great communities along the shore of Lake Erie up there. Um, I think winter is going to be tough. Winter is going to be tough for um, so many of our businesses it, it, throughout Northeast Ohio that depend on um, on outdoor activities because indoor activities are just are going to be more limited. Um, I think you know what Adam talked about. Additional stimulus is key for those types of small businesses, um, and it's it's just hanging on through this winter until the spring when hopefully. You know, medically, we're, we're, we start to get real light at the end of the tunnel, and and uh, uh, and far more outdoor activities can uh, uh, um, can start to can start to occur again. Mm -hmm. Nan, talk to me about places like a Sandusky, a place that's not sitting in the big city but still uses and depends upon tourism. Are they faring worse, better, even? You know, I, I have said this before and I'll say it again. I think COVID has been the great equalizer. I think everybody is hurting. I think it's leveled the playing field, whether cities are are devastated by this impact. But one of, one of the things I'd recommend for Sandusky and, and smaller cities as well is, is to just, you know, take a look at your product, look within your own boundaries, look at your residents as a source of business and local drive and partnerships are critical. Uh, you may not have partnered with a neighboring city, but go ahead and see what you can do. Uh, there's more strengths together in times of diversity than not, but also looking into, into your own residents and see what kind of programs you can possibly develop for them uh, is something worth considering. Okay. Got a question that kind of almost ties into that, Nan. Uh, it says, what role do you see for small museums? What resources are available for those tiny places? Because we think about the Cleveland Museum of Art or the Natural History Museum or the Rock Hall. But we also have a little firefighters museum you can't get more than 12, 14 people into. How do those folks go forward? 
Well, I think, you know, being compliant with what the rules are for the protocols are for safety, um, showcasing the fact that you can visit your museum safely, depending on what the numbers are. And again, partnerships and and kind of thinking outside of the box of, of what you can do that's different um, based on what your product is. Just anything that we've traditionally done, we can't depend on anymore because there is nothing traditional or, or um, safe about COVID. So we just have to think a little differently and be, be willing to take risks. May not work, but you don't know if you don't try something different. Mm -hmm. Adam, what do you think, um, as you study the numbers, are the smaller places surviving less well than the bigger places that do have an endowment? Uh, yeah, yeah, smaller, smaller places, places are going, going, going out of business. Um, um, it's, it, it, it is that stark. And, and uh, uh, PPP loans got through, through the first, first phase. phase. It, it, they're, they're right, right now, there's no safety. And that's what we're entering into right now. So, so uh, you know, again, yeah, the critical need for support. You know, yeah, larger, larger, larger hotels, larger attractions. Um, you know, depends on how you measure it. They laid off significant numbers of staff. But the institution itself still exists with, you know, with just management level staffing. There's all sorts of things going on. Restructural loans for these properties because banks aren't getting any as a result. But those institutions, those businesses will still be there on the other side. They have the ability to negotiate with banks because of their size, but small business doesn't. And small business, you know, the proprietor depends on the income for their livelihood. And, and, and so that, that's, that's where you see the fragility of these smaller businesses relative to businesses. Okay. And a couple more minutes if you want to text in a few more questions. But uh, one that came in, Nan wanted to kind of know what the new normal might look like. Do we have any way of projecting COVID is so, so fickle? We don't know where it's going to go. But what are we thinking right now? We have to have some plan. I, I honestly don't know what the new normal is going to look like. I think it, it's it's the no, it's the now normal. I mean, it's we live we're living it every day. Uh, I think the one thing that's critical is that consumers need to be confident. They need to have that sense of confidence that they can travel and that they can do it safety. That safety message I think is not going to go away even post post um, post COVID. I think that's going to be forefront in people's minds about how they can travel safely. That's going to be something that you're going to think about first. I think some of the protocols that have been put in place, especially in, in, in airlines, on the planes, cruise lines, when they come back, I think those are going to stay for the foreseeable future. So um, no crystal ball, but I do think some of the protocols that have been put in place as it relates to safety will continue on for the foreseeable future. Well, it's interesting. If you look at, at air travel prior to 9-11 and after, it's, it is absolutely night and day. You, if, if you had a, somebody who didn't know what travel was like prior, you went back in time, they wouldn't believe that you could, you know, go under a quick metal detector. You could walk your friend, you know, meet your friends right at the gate. I mean, it was a different world. But yet we figured out how to get back to a very normal industry just with different protocols. And ultimately, one way or another, the same will happen. We will get back to a normal that's going to allow everybody to travel and, and to do the things they want to do. There, there, but there will likely be some future protocols that, that in time will just feel very normal to us. 
David, question came in that really kind of impacts me too because I'm sitting here. They wanted to know what do we do to bring Playhouse Square back? Well, one thing I could tell you is they have an incredible team there. I know Gina Bernacci and her whole team are, are doing everything they can. You know, one of the one of the difficult parts with Playhouse Square is they they're um, they are dictated by what what the state and the city are mandating, and and it's not a bad thing, um, but but so much is beyond their specific control. Um, but but what I I I, I you know. I think we all hope because Playhouse Square is such a treasure um, that that um, you know as soon as time allows uh, and as soon as regulations allow, they're going to be back and they're going to figure out a way to be back. Uh, uh, that that you know it'll continue to be the gem that it is. Um, I wish I wish I knew exactly, and I don't know if they know exactly because COVID is still ongoing, but. Um, I have every confidence that uh, that their team is going to be going to make make absolutely the most out of uh, whatever the the recovery brings. Yeah, I'm still holding on to some of my tickets from last year as well. Um, <laughs> you touched on the idea there of being mandated by the state, and we didn't really go there earlier when we mentioned the governor, but he did have that big speech last night. He did put things into place. I wonder how often Destination Cleveland or or the Sports Commission contacts Columbus to see what are they going to allow you to do? What can we push back on? Um, we're actually very engaged. Um, we're engaged on multiple levels. Um, I was part of one of the governor's task forces related to how this early on, how the state would uh, um, uh, uh, respond to large sporting events and to meetings and conventions. Um, we, we are part of a number of state associations that, that lobby regularly. Um, and, and we do get very engaged. I, I will say, I think, I feel bad for the governor, quite frankly. I think they're in a tough spot because on one hand, the business interruption is key. We see it every day with all of our, with restaurants, hotels, attractions. On the other hand, you have a very real health and safety issue for residents and, and keeping in mind the long-term future of our economy. So, so I think, Sadly, I don't think there is a right answer. We're doing we're doing our best to add add our voice and our contacts to uh, in terms of the industry. But I also I also believe you know that that the governor has a very a very tough job uh, uh, every day in, in dealing with this. Okay, Nan, I'll give you the last word today. Should we be optimistic? Absolutely, the glass is half full. We'll get past this. And as David and Adam has said, this industry has always come back stronger. Absolutely. Absolutely. We'll leave it there. Thank you all yeah. for joining us for today's forum on the future of travel and tourism in Cleveland. We've been talking with Nan Marchand Beauvoir, the Senior Vice President of Membership and Industry Relations for the U.S. Travel Association. David Gilbert, President and CEO of Destination Cleveland. And Adam Sachs, President of Tourism Economics. Thank you all for being there. This forum was presented in partnership with Destination Cleveland. We do appreciate their support. All City Club virtual forums are sponsored by Bank of America, the Cleveland Foundation, Eaton, the George Gund Foundation, Key Bank, Nordson, the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District, and PNC, and the many more generous members, sponsors, and donors listed on the website at cityclub.org slash thank you. You can join them in supporting this work when you make a contribution online or become a member at cityclub.org. I'm Rick Jackson of IdeaStream. Thank you so much for joining us today. Our forum is now adjourned.